Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Amen, amen. Thanks, Ben. Good to see you guys this morning. Thanks for coming to church. So good to have you. Beautiful day in Orange County. I think the sun's trying to fight its way out. Hopefully the June gloom is making its way out and the sun's going to shine bright. And we're excited to have you, especially if you're a first-time guest. Thanks for coming. As Ben said, we're in a series in the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Sometimes a scary book, an awesome book, a book of wonder, but... uh, We're excited about jumping into this book because, as the book says, it opens with a promise. It's a book that promises a blessing. Actually, the only New Testament book that we have that promises a blessing to those that read it. And the blessing, ultimately, is that you were made for more than this. I don't know, I may date myself, but Jack Nicholson is an old-time actor. He won a lot of Academy Awards. He's not doing acting today, but he made this movie called As Good As It Gets, and he's a guy, and he's kind of a quirky guy, and he walks into this office that's actually the office of a therapist, and all these people in there waiting for their therapy session and their drugs, and he looks into the last one, and he goes, just think as this is, if this is as good as it gets, right? Just think if we're the richest people in the richest county in the world, Orange County, second richest maybe, we're, we're just rich, we have everything, everything at our fingertips, technology, healthcare, jobs, so much in Orange County, are, are we rich, can we, can we just say we're rich, we're all rich, and guess what, in spite of that, Orange County's a mess, divorce rates, abuse, addiction, Sex slave trade, right in Orange County, <laughs> being busted, right? Drugs, gangs, Orange County's a mess. And just think, if this is as good as it gets, 60, 70 years, man, got some great restaurants, had some great fun, and then I go into the grave, and that's all. this is as good as it gets. The book of Revelation is saying to us, in spite of the mess, in spite of the madness of this world that we see every day, on the news cycle, and our phones, in our own communities, in spite of this madness and the mess, you were made for more than this. You were made by love and for love. You were made by a loving God that cares for you and wants to have a love relationship with you and wants to put his love at the center of your heart. And this book of Revelation is written to an early first century church to encourage them to stay faithful in spite of the madness, in spite of the mess, in spite of the persecution that they're undergoing in about A.D. 90. The Roman government is trying to crush them. Right? They're, they're under heavy persecution, heavy temptation from an outside world. Stay faithful to the one who loves you. And so this is a blessing. And here's what it says. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and take heart, take it to their heart, hear it, own it, live it, right? And what is written in it? Because the time is near. Time is near. So take heed, church, listen to these words, and listen to the blessing that comes from these words, and respond to it. And the incredible blessing is that the Son of Man is in the middle of his church. The Son of Man, which is a term used for Jesus, used it himself, comes out of the Old Testament, the book of Daniel. This 
figure that was God in flesh, a man-like figure that was actually divine. The Son of Man, God, Jesus Christ, is in the middle of his church right now, right here, today. He's not over his church. He's not some faraway place that he just looks afar. He's not some God that wound things up and didn't get involved in his creation. No, that's not, he's not just way far away. He's not outside of his church with no power to help and just kind of knocking and doesn't, isn't, doesn't have a way. He's actually inside of his church. He's here with us right here, right now. He is about his church in the world today. As we look at all the madness, we look at all the, all the challenges, you know, where is God? Where is God? Where is God in the Ukraine? Where is God in Mexico and the poor? Where is God in the famine in Africa? Where is God? God is in his church. God is working in and through his church in the world today. God is healing, transforming, loving, and blessing. Jesus is in the midst and working in and through. That is his plan. There's no plan B. It is the church. That means it's us. If you're a Christ follower today, Jesus cares about your life, what's happening, and he is in the middle of his church today wanting to do his purposes. The book of Philippians says, He who began a good work on you, he will complete it under the day of Christ Jesus. Jesus is in the mix and is in the madness with his church, and he's molding his church into an eternal hope. And that's what he's doing today. That's what he cares about. And the book of Revelation is a message to the church. Seven churches in Asia Minor. And as we move from a vision of Jesus to the church, Jesus is going to have specific words for his church. And that's what he says to John in this vision. As John sees the risen Christ and experiences Jesus, he falls on his knees and the voice says this, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me, and when I turned around I saw seven golden lampstands. John is seeing a vision of the heavenly realms, a vision of Jesus in the middle of his church. I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, Jesus, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and a golden sash around his chest. There's all kinds of imagery. Go back to Ben's sermon last week if you want to hear more about this vision. But here's the outcome. Right therefore, Jesus says, what you have seen, what is now, what's happening in the church, and what will take place. Right? And the, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw at my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. Seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the lampstands are the churches themselves. This is hopeful to a suffering church that Jesus cares and Jesus is in the midst of his church. It's a hopeful message. One, this message that Jesus gives to the church in the book of Revelation through the Apostle John is a pastoral letter. It's a letter written by a real-life guy who was suffering. John was exiled on the Isle of Patmos, right? For preaching the gospel because he refused to worship the emperor as God. He's exiled, right? And so the head of the church is suffering, right? The head of the church is in prison. What's the hope for the church? Jesus is right there in the midst of the church and he knows exactly what's happening in your life. Right? It's a pastoral letter. Jesus is with us and for us in our suffering. If you're suffering today, you're going through suffering challenges, whether it's physically, emotionally, spiritually, what you're going through, Jesus cares about what's happening to you. Jesus is with you and for you in the middle of your struggle and your suffering. It's a pastoral letter, but it's also a prophetic challenge. Prophetic challenge, because as Jesus critiques and challenges his church, he's going to say, hey guys, you're out of alignment with love. 
You're out of alignment with love God, love people, with how much I love you. You're out of alignment and you've lost your way. I want to bring you back into alignment with what it means to live out the gospel so you can be an effective witness in the world today, so that you can experience the fullness of what I did when I died for you. The prophetic word, to call the church back to the right living and the right lane. And the third thing it is, it's an apocalyptic vision. Apocalyptic. This is a form of literature. It's Jewish. It's genre. It's the way Jewish literature was written at many times, and it's using Old Testament imagery to bring supernatural hope to God's people, especially in the midst of suffering. What Apocalyptic says is the world is not what it seems. It seems that, you know, guys like Putin can come and destroy people's lives. It seems like Putin gets to win. It seems like, you know, America, whoever has the most money and the most power and success, they're the ones that win. They're the ones that get the big houses. They get success. It seems like, right, the boys on Wall Street who have the insider information and can trade and make, it seems like they win. It seems like they win. And guess what? Revelation says, no, no, the world's not what it seems. Because the end, guess who wins? God wins. Jesus will return, he will set things right, and he will do justice. He will judge evil and he will set up a kingdom that will last forever. This is the hope to a suffering church. This is why the past, many pastors in Ukraine have not left the Ukraine. They stayed and suffered with their people. Why? Because there's a bigger hope and a bigger vision and this world is not enough. It is not our home. And this is the hope of the gospel. And if you are a seeker here, if you're looking at Jesus, he wants to give you that hope today. And he he wants to set your heart alive with the flame of his love so you can live out of that hope. Because that's the only hope that overcomes death and suffering and persecution and all that's the mess of our world today. It's the hope of one day things are going to get set right. And so Jesus has a word for his seven churches. Why seven? The word is a word of commendation for the good. Jesus is going to say, here's what's good about your church. Here's what I, I really appreciate. Here's an attaboy, right? But here's a critique. Here's where you've fallen short. Here's where you've fallen off the center of my life and my love. Here's where you need to turn and come back in alignment with me. And here's the challenge. Guys, as you move forward and you overcome, guess what? There is blessing in the future for you. There is blessing when I return with my eternal hope. Keep that vision before you because that fuels you as you go through the challenging suffering and pain of this world. Why seven churches? There were actually seven churches in Asia Minor. They're actually addresses. They're real churches with real people in them. This is a historical document, but the word seven means complete in the Bible. And so what John is saying is this is a complete message to the whole church. It's not just for these seven specific, but it's what the whole church, all the churches that have been established through the gospel, they're facing these kind of challenges. And it's a complete message because it's not just for the church back then, it's for the church 2,000 years today ago today that sits right here in Orange County. This church right here, Watermark Church, can take heed because we as a church in America are going through the same struggles and the same challenges that that church went through back then. And so we need to take heed. We need to listen to what the angel to the church of Watermark, you know, there's an angel over every church. The Bible is a supernatural book. It's not scientific naturalism. It's it's a supernatural book. It says there's a whole other world that's beyond the natural world that is supernatural, that 
The creation came out of a supernatural world. A God who is personal. A God who created supernatural beings, angels, and they do his will. And there's an angel over every church wanting that church to hear the voice of God, encouraging that church, and helping that church follow God's path. Because God cares about his church. Jesus is in the mix, and his team is with him and what he's doing. The angel to the church. And so there's seven churches, and today we're going to look at the church of Ephesus. This is the first church of the seven. Ephesus, modern-day Turkey. You can go visit this site. It's actually one of the best places to go to to look at archaeology. Incredible how much stuff we have left from that city because it is a world-class city. It was a world-class city, a Top Gun city. Top Gun? You may see it? Great movie. Top Gun city in a top-notch Top Gun Church, Top Notch City. Got it wrong. Top Gun Church in a Top Gun City, Top Notch City. Okay? The church at Ephesus was a Top Gun Church in a Top Notch City. Let's look at Ephesus to understand a little bit about why, what Jesus writes to this church. Ephesus was world class, it was a city of light. Technological improvement. You know, we've got these smartphones. What they had was the first city lights. You know, Ephesus was the first city historically that put city lights around the city. They called it the light of Asia. Interesting, fun fact. It was advancing, it was large, it was international, it was a world-class city. Major cultural, financial, and religious center. Gateway to the east, seaport. Everybody, anybody who wanted to trade and take their goods into Asia, this marketplace, and get out there, they came through Ephesus, right? Roman roads, a great port. They had, they had a lot of culture. They had Olympic-type games. The Pan-Ionian Games rivaled the Olympics. They had an amphitheater that Paul spoke in. You can actually see that amphitheater today, 24,000-seat amphitheater. They had a library that had 12,000 scrolls. Man, this was an international, world-class, metropolitan center. Uh, it also was the home of a lot of religious activity. As a matter of fact, the home of the worship of the goddess Artemis. Artemis was the city god, goddess, the protector of the city. She was a Greek god, and then the Romans brought her into the Roman, uh, the Roman pantheon, and she became Diana, but she had a temple that was one of the seven wonders of the world. We went and saw uh, SoFi Stadium this week. We took the tour as a staff. What an amazing, I encourage you to go see that. That thing is incredible. All the architecture, the engineering, and the technology just blows you away. Um, I thought we had a picture of that, did we, Isaac? Anyways, it's a world-class, and you can't drive around that area and not see that stadium. It's dominant. You can't fly in LAX and not look, and it's just, it's just a huge stadium. I think it's the largest football stadium in the country now. And this thing's amazing. But when you came in Ephesus, what did you see? You saw the Temple of Artemis. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. It's actually built on two football fields, not just one. Two football fields. It's the largest marble structure still that's ever been built. And you can see the foundation. It's still there today. So Ephesus was a crazy... There, there's SoFi. SoFi, amazing stadium. The temple of Artemis was like the same thing in the ancient world. People flocked, people traveled to go see this, to worship this god. She was uh, the goddess of the hunt. She was goddess of fertility. So if you wanted to have a lot of babies and have a great family, you went to worship her, made a sacrifice, took an amulet home, prayed over, hopefully you're going to have a baby. Hopefully you're going to have a good hunt and get lots of game or your, your business would go well. She was somebody that would fuel all that for you. And so this was a religious center. You had the Artemis, but you also had emperor worship, which was introduced 
about 80, around AD 90, the end of the first century. And that, that had ha- happened under the emperor Domitian. Domitian decided, hey, you know, the Caesars are pretty cool and wonderful. You guys need to worship us. And so they started building temples for the, the Caesars. And you would go, you'd take a, a pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord. And that was a law that became a law under Domitian. John would not do it. Christians would not do it. Many Christians lost their lives because they wouldn't worship Caesar as God. And so that's why John's being persecuted. It's a, it's a center for emperor worship as well. The church there was, was a top-gun church in a top-notch city, founded by Paul, Priscilla, and Aquila. You can read about that in Acts 19. I encourage you to go back, read about that two-year ministry, one of Paul's most powerful ministries. Miracles, signs, and wonders, a lot of Christians, an amazing church founded there, which John is writing to in Ephesus. Later pastored by Timothy. Timothy was martyred by the Romans, uh, tradition tells us. And then it was pastored by John. John, the last apostle, was exiled on Patmos, writing the last book in the Bible. It was attended by Jesus' mother, Mary. This is the kind of church you'd want to go to. This is a mega church and a mega city, and it's world class. And it's, it's hopping. I mean, they would do church conferences probably and say, Here, if you want to do church, come to Ephesus and we'll teach you how to do church, right? This is the purpose-driven church in the first century world. This is, this is the church. And Jesus has some great things to say about this church. Here's his commendation. I know your deeds. I know your hard work, your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. That you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false, you have preserved and have not grown weary. And you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. There's a lot of good things to unpack about this church. This church was orthodox. They knew the gospel. They knew the truth. They stood for the truth. They defended the truth against a world that was pushing against them. A world full of idolatry, pagan worship, a world where Rome was saying you need to come alongside and worship the emperor, a world that was trying to impose values and beliefs on them, they they pushed back on that. And they stood strong. They didn't tolerate false teachers. Matter of fact, Paul in the book of Acts says, after I leave, wolves are going to come in and they're going to try to deceive you. And this church was aware of that word from Paul and they stood against because the Nicolaitans were false teachers that infiltrated the church. They pretended to be Christ followers. They bought into stuff, the Word of God, but they said, you know, it's okay to add a little bit of stuff to this. We can add a little bit of culture to this, and it's okay to, you know, eat, eat, eat meat given to idols. It's okay to go and worship a little bit here. It doesn't matter. You put a little pinch here. It, they tried to meld the stuff of the world with uh, the gospel, and Ephesians did not tolerate them, did not give them a pulpit or a platform and said, no, that's false. And so they stood against false teaching. They stood against the culture. They were hardworking, and they were persecuted because of that. They lost business contracts because of that. They were, their friendships, you know, they were looked down upon because of that, and there was persecution, and so there was social persecution, there was economic persecution, and ultimately persecution from the government, because Paul is exiled the Pavement. These guys stood strong, and so this is a good church. There's a lot going on here. People might even say there's a lot of good churches in America. I mean, Orange County is full of good churches. You know how many churches are within a mile of here? How many churches you passed and went by? we got churches everywhere, and there's a lot of activity, right? 
And there's a lot of things going on in those churches. And, and there's a lot of right beliefs. Yeah, we, we believe in Jesus. And a lot of people have prayed prayers in our churches. And we're preaching his word. Then why is the American church dying? Why is the light of the American church flickering lower and lower? Why do we have the great resignation in the church just like the world? Why are so many pastors quitting and giving up? Why are so many people ho-hum about gathering in a church because there's so many other great things to do today in Orange County? And so I'll just pat yourself on the back. You're unique. You know, go ahead. That's good. I'll give you an attaboy. Because guess what? I think maybe 10% of Orange County is in church today. 90% of Orange County is pursuing everything else. A lot of good things, right? And so, why, why is the church dying in America? The church is thriving in China. The church is thriving in Africa. Africa is now the center of Christianity. America is the second, third largest mission field in the world. They're sending missionaries to us to try to... Why is the church, this church that was a world-class church in America, that sent missionaries, that started the movement, that has such great history and tradition and revival, why is it dying Well, perhaps Paul's word to Ephesus is something that the American church, perhaps Paul's word to Ephesus is something that we need to take heart here at Watermark. We have a lot of cool stuff here and a lot of neat things, and we try to preach God's word, and there's activity, but are we following Christ with a whole heart, a devoted heart? Are we in love with Jesus? Is he have first place? Because this is the problem with this church. They're offended by evil, they're orthodox in faith, they're patient in suffering, but Jesus has a word against them. Yet I hold this against you, Ephesian church. You have forsaken your first love. You have orthodoxy. Oh my gosh, you know how many podcasts we have? Do you know how much information I can get off the internet on right Christian doctrine? There is so much information, it is absolutely crazy how many books on orthodoxy, how many books on our beliefs. There is no problem with understanding what orthodox beliefs are. It is all there. They had the orthodoxy, they had the information, they knew, they knew the word of God. And they had activity. There are so many activities we can do and do this and do that, but what they didn't have is they didn't have intimacy. They didn't have intimacy. They didn't didn't have a love, a love life that was lighting their heart. Their heart was not aflame and on fire with God's love. And so because of that, the church was dying. They grew inward and insular because of all the attack, all the outward attack. They just built bigger walls and they built better, better places for them to gather and be together. And they had wonderful, wonderful music probably. And they opened the word of God. But they didn't care about Ephesus anymore. They didn't care about the dying and the lost in Ephesus. They didn't care about the prostitutes and slave trade at the Temple Artemis. They stopped caring about that. They stopped caring about the babies that were turned off. First century abortion, you just aborted the babies. And Ephesians, they were famous for taking and adopting them. They stopped caring about killing of children. They stopped caring about all the stuff. They They got so hardened and cold from fighting and and burnout of activity, they lost their heart for God. They lost the why, right? They were a top gun church in a top-notch city. Guess what? 
Come on, you know what's coming next. You've lost that love and feeling. Oh, love and feeling. You've lost that love and... Come on, I need some help. And it's gone, gone, gone. They lost it. They lost their heart for God. They lost the experience of God. They, they, they stopped being excited about gathering with God's people and hearing the gospel. They stopped praying for lost people and sacrificing for the lost. They stopped going to the poor and the needy and serving them and seeing the gospel in them. They stopped going and being a light in their community. They stopped caring about their neighbors. They just got insular. They got cold. And they started to die. And Jesus says, if you, if you don't change, your church is going to die. The candle, the flame is going to get removed. It's going to burn out. And sadly, I think that's part of the prescription for the American church. You've got all these buildings, got all this activity, you've got all this orthodoxy. But do we have love for God that lights us on fire, that burns so much that we're willing to give ourselves away for the world that's dying around us? And so the question for us today, the question for the Ephesian church is, is the flame of God's love alive in our hearts today? How do you answer that question? If Jesus would critique you, or as he critiques Watermark, as he challenges us, hey, there's a lot of good things at Watermark, and you're doing good stuff. But am I first in your heart? Am I first place in your life? You see, it's so easy to reject that love of God because we grow up in a culture that teaches us to reject the love of God. The world forms us around a different understanding of who God is and what it means to know Him and what it would even mean to experience His love. We have religion everywhere that says this is what you need to do to have God's love in your life. You need to do these things, right? And so we reject God's love. One of the reasons why is because we feel rejected by others. One of the main reasons, I think, in America that the church is dying and we have all these problems, all these social problems of hatred between the cultures and the races, all these problems in our school systems between kids bullying and all this stuff on the internet that destroys lives, suicide, all this stuff that's so terrible, the root of it I don't think it's politics. The root of it, I don't think it's economic. The root of it is education. No, I don't think it's any of that stuff. I think that's a symptom and you can do those things. The root of it, I think, is fatherlessness. Fatherlessness. We have so many children and so many people that have no affection and love and a relationship with their father. Whether they've been abandoned or abused or just ignored... There is no father love that gets into the hearts of many of our people. Most of the men that I talk to have terrible relationships with their dads. Maybe you would think about that. And if you have a good relationship, maybe you're saying, oh, I'm so blessed. You are blessed because that's very unique. I think fatherlessness, the breakdown of the family, the divorce, and and the, the idolatry of going and doing all this stuff to prove that I'm enough has taken dads out of their role to be a loving presence of God in the family system. That's why we reject, because we've been, we have a huge father wound in America today. We have a huge mother wound in America. We've been rejected by our family, and there's no love, and so we reject God's love, because that's the center of where it's supposed to be transferred. We reject God's love. 
We think we've got to earn God's love because the world tells us in Orange County, your identity and value is all about what you earn. You're accepted, your status, everything about you is what you earn, what you wear, how you perform. You've got to earn it. And so the world pounds that into you. So why wouldn't you think, then I've got to earn it with God? Because religion tells you you've got to do these things. What a brilliant lie of Satan. I'm not going to give you the gospel, I'll just give you religion. Right? And so we, we think we've got to earn it, so we reject it because we're never enough to earn it. We feel so not enough in Orange County, so we feel not enough in earning God's love. And so we walk away from God. We don't accept it. And then the third thing is we've got to control it. Because it's all about you. If you're God and the world tells you you're God, if that little black box tells you that you're God, that you get to control the world. That little black box in your, that you're texting right now in your pocket, that tells you that you're God. Consumerism says you are God. And so it's all about you. So we're narcissists. Psychologists in America say, you know what the American culture is? It's narcissistic hysteria. We're so infatuated with ourself and our bloated self, our posting and everything. It's all about me, all about me. And so I have to control God's love. God's love, God has to, has to love me the way I want him to love. I have to control him because I'm God. And so I switch roles and Jesus has to be my homeboy. Jesus has to be my rabbit's foot. Jesus has to be my genie in a bottle because he's got to serve me or he doesn't love me. And so we reject God's love because God won't do everything we want him to do. We can't control him. This is the problem. I reject God, and maybe if you're a seeker here, why maybe you rejected God, or you don't understand his love, because this is so, such a lie about God's love in your life. And one of the ways to experience God's love is to own this and say, I've bought a lie. What's the truth? The truth is that God loves you, no matter what you do, where you come from, how much you earn, how much you control, whether you rejected his love or not, he loves you no matter what. And that's the good news of Jesus. That's why God came and took on skin. Paul, who bought the lie of religion, I have to earn God's love, was ambushed by Jesus Christ. And he fell down slack face. He was persecuting and killing Christians, and he found the love of God in Jesus Christ. And here's what he says. The gospel is for him. The gospel is being united with God's love. God's love is not a force to be controlled. God's love is not a product to be consumed. God's love is a person to be united with. Jesus Christ is God's love with skin on for you. And he gave his life for you to destroy everything that's come against you and to give you the gift of eternal love relationship. Eternal life is not a place per se. It is. It's a person. It's a love relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, I have been united with Christ. I have been crucified with Christ. When Christ died, I died to that lie of religion. I don't try to earn God's love anymore. It's been earned for me. I don't try to control God's love anymore. God's in control of me now. It's not about me anymore. Right? I don't reject God's love because God's love didn't reject me. I died to that old lie, that old way of pattern of living. Each one of you has a pattern of rejecting God's love in your soul. That's been crucified. That's been put to death with Christ. And now I don't live anymore. That old part of me does not live. But Christ lives in me. God's love has now been resurrected in my life. Eternal, unconditional Hopeful, purposeful, peaceful love is alive at the center of my life. And the life I live now in the body, I live by faith 
in a faith relationship, a love relationship with the Son of God, Jesus, who loved me and gave himself for me. My life is now a love affair with God through Jesus Christ. I'm in love with God through Jesus Christ. I can't get enough, and his love fills me and fuels everything I do. That's the gospel. That's what God... If you're a Christian, the love of God is in your heart right now. The flame of God's love is alive in your heart because you have Christ in your heart. And so you are rich with the resources of love. When Paul wrote the Ephesian church, 40 years before Revelation, he said, you guys are so rich in love. This was a top gun church. 40 years before Revelation, it was a top gun church and a top notch city, and they knew it. They were rich in love. Here's what Paul says in the opening part of the Ephesian letter to this church, 40 years before Jesus critiques it. You guys, you guys are rich in love. Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. We've been so blessed, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for his adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace. He lavished love on us. He poured love on us. Every blessing is about the richness of God's love in your life. You are aflame with God's love. Are you stoking that fire? Are you grabbing a hold of those? Are you living out of the richness of God's love? Are you pursuing richness through the lies of Orange County? Are you pursuing your richness through your performance? Are you pursuing your richness to try to earn love? Are you pursuing your religious relation, trying to control your spouse, control your marriage? Is that how you're going to find love? By controlling your spouse? By controlling your kid? Are you trying to pursue love the world's way, which is a lie, or with God's way, saying, I'm rich, I receive, I own the love, the belovedness of God in my life. If you don't feel the flame of God's love alive in your heart, I would encourage you to spend time this week in this passage. This is a keynote love passage. This describes how much God loves you. And if you're ho-hum about God's love or you don't know about God's love, this is the passage that will tell you how much he loves you. Because he chose you before the foundation of the world. And maybe that's the, the, the truth that you need to believe, that I'm chosen. God chose me. He chose me to be his very own before I ever did anything, ever performed, ever earned, even reject. He chose you. It says also, I got problems here. Okay. Don't let that move. (laughs) He says that we're holy and blameless. You see yourself? You look in the mirror and see yourself the way God sees you? If you don't, you're out of alignment. You've bought the lie of your parenting. You've bought the lie of the world. You think you're rejected. You think you're ugly. You think you're not enough. This says when God sees you, he sees beauty. He sees holy and blameless. He sees the object. Do you see yourself that way? Perhaps this is a truth that you need to start owning and grabbing onto and praying through in your life. You're adopted by God. You're a part of His, you're His beloved son and daughter. Do you know how much that you're His beloved one? 
I am my beloved and my beloved is mine. Have you ever just sat on a rock or taken a walk and say, oh, I'm my beloved to my beloved. Jesus, I'm the beloved one because of you. God, you love me. That You ever meditated and let that sink into your soul and praise God for that and walked out of that? Do you spend time letting God love you with his truth or do you run with activity and think everything's great because you said a prayer or went to church on Sunday, but are you living out of the richness and letting God's love sink into your soul and light the fire inside of you? You have unearned grace. Grace is a love word. That means you didn't earn anything. You didn't deserve anything. Matter of fact, Ephesians says, we deserved wrath. We rejected God. We walked away from Him. But He sent His Son to make us alive, and He gave us grace. Wow. God, you gave this as a free gift. Oh, thank you for your... Have you thought, thanked Him for that grace? The favor that's on you as His beloved Son. You're immensely valued. When Jesus died for you, he redeemed you. That means he paid the price for anything that's ever been wrong. You are equal with the blood of God's Son. That's how valued you are. Have you ever measured your value that way? Or do you measure your value based on your bank account, your job, and your car? If you do that, you're, you're, you're living out a lie that's going to deceive you and make you empty. But if you live in that, you'll be a flame. I'm equal with the blood of I am so valued by God. And you're accepted. You're never rejected. The door of great... You can run boldly into God's throne room as a beloved children and say, Abba, Abba, Daddy. Oh, hum, I already know that. Don't you have a better sermon for me, Bucky? If that's your thought right now, that means you don't understand God's love. You haven't grasped it. You haven't experienced it. You haven't owned it. It hasn't sucked so deeply into your life that it's changed you forever. And if you don't, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you actually accepted that? Have you actually said yes to him? Have you actually surrendered to him and said, it's not about me anymore. It's just about you, God. I'm going to shift and give it to you. Or if you are a Christian and you're just ho-home, have you substituted religion? Just this dead orthodoxy and your heart is dead cold. God wants to light that flame and make it alive in you. Jesus is calling out to you through my words right now and wooing you back to him and saying, I want my love to burn so bright in your life, everybody sees it. It's a supernatural thing that the Holy Spirit does in our hearts to help us grasp. And here's the prayer that I would give you. The prayer that Paul prayed for the Ephesian church that they somehow walked away from, that they somehow stopped being intimacy, they stopped pursuing, they stopped understanding, they settled for activity and orthodoxy. But Paul says, this is a prayer about the fire of God's love being alive, about you understanding and grasping it. Here's what Paul prays. And I would encourage you, write this down, to pray this prayer in your life. If you don't understand God's love, if you can't grasp it, if you don't experience it, that God would create a breakthrough in your heart. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray out of his glorious riches. Those are the riches we just read in Ephesians 1. Out of these riches, grace, chosenness, forgiveness, redemption. These riches, right? That he would strengthen us with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner person, in our heart. So that Christ would dwell in our hearts through faith. So that we would know it would be settled once and for all. Jesus is at the center, and if Jesus is at the center, 
I don't need to earn it. I don't need to prove it. I don't need to control it. I just surrender to it. I'm rooted in his forgiveness. I'm rooted in his grace. It's established that there's nothing that can separate me from his love. And therefore, through the Spirit, I begin to grasp how wide, how long, how deep, how high. I pray that you being rooted and established, you have the power through the Spirit together with all the Lord's people, the church. See, we do this together, guys. This is the problem where we don't understand God's love because we're individual Christians. We're not in a community that encourages us and disciples us in love. We have to be discipled. We have to be grown up. If you didn't have a father, you need a spiritual father. You need a spiritual mother. You need a mentor. You need a community that will accept you and will help you grasp and grow in the knowledge of God. You don't do this alone. You do this together with God and his people, together with all the saints. Have the power to grasp how wide and long and high as deep is the love of Christ and to know that love that surpasses knowledge that you'll be filled with the measure of all the fullness of God. That, why did Paul pray that prayer? He could have prayed, make, make this church rich with a great building, give this church great seats, give this church wonderful coffee, may they have a great worship, worship pastor, give them a great teaching pastor that doesn't bore people, give them all this, he doesn't pray any of that stuff. Give them an understanding of your love because none of that stuff matters. What matters is when the love of God is in our heart, we are so satisfied. We're fully satisfied with God. And guess what? That frees us to love and serve others, to give our lives for others. When I am fully satisfied with God's belovedness, when I have that and I know that I'm free now, I don't have to earn it, control it, and make it happen, I can love others. I can be persecuted by my enemy. I can go talk to somebody that hates me. I can serve the poor because it's not about me. It's about him and it's pouring out of me. You have that love in your heart. Is that love alive? Is it a flame in the church? I pray that that's what happen in the American church again. I pray that revival will happen in our land. I pray that this, this prayer of Ephesus will happen in our marriages, in our homes, and in our world because this is the only thing that will change the world and change America back to God is this church is a flame with the love of God. So what's Jesus' challenge for us this morning as we close today? I'm going the wrong way, guys. Challenge is Bucky. Use the clicker right. I had this against you, Bucky. You don't know how to use the clicker. There we go. All right. Sorry, guys. What? Okay, good. Thank you. I, I can't. I can't earn it. I can't control it. Please give me great. I can't do this. I'm throwing this. Thank you, Isaac. Jesus' challenge is consider how far you've fallen. Have you fallen off God's love, God's grace? You've fallen off. Repent. That means turn and do the things you did at first. If you don't repent, your church is going to die. Well, come and remove your lampstand. He's just saying, I'm going to give you what you want. You don't want my love. You don't want my spirit. It's just going to die in your midst. Your community is going to die. But whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches in America. The churches then, the one who is victorious. Jesus expects us to be victorious, guys. Jesus expects us to overcome. He wants us to light and fire so the world knows God's love. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Tree of life, Old Testament imagery. Genesis 1, right? The tree of life. 
That was there for them to enjoy God's eternal life in the garden. And we walked away from that, and that door was closed. And instead of life, what do we get? We get death. We get the curse. Right? We get what America is today. And yet, the life of God is inside of His church. And as we walk out that light, guess what? One day we're going to be Revelation 22. And the city of God comes down. The tree of life is in the middle of that city. And it says it brings flourishing fruit every day. And ultimately, you know what the tree of life is? The tree of life is Jesus. Jesus said, I'm the true vine. Abide in me. You're going to bear fruit. So we're going to be eternally bearing and enjoying the fruit of God. The love will be there forever. There will be no more fear, condemnation, shame, guilt. No more boredom. No more emptiness you will be fully satisfied with the love of God. And that love can light your flame today. Let's bow our heads as we prepare for communion. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.